How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 248. Just took 248 space bucks for lunch, gas, and tolls. Ooh, do you know this? No, I can't think it's of it. It's a space goof film. The Galaxy Quest? Close. Spaceballs. Spaceballs. Which I've never seen. A Mel Brooks film. Hmm. Yeah. I'm starting to, after watching The Producers and like looking at his other filmography, I'm starting to get him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm a massive Blazing Saddles fan, so. Yeah. Oh, I still got to watch. That's on binge now, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty sure. Oh, he's he's a director that's worth visiting, that's for sure. Mm. You know, in terms of that's corners. That's true, yeah. Um, Could be a good one to do soon. I like I like that pick, Zeke. There you go. How are you, Jake? I'm pretty good. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's been a fun week. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm excited to talk about some uh, some fellas, some good ones. They're a, a good vocation, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Absolutely. You got any fun <laughs> trivia to kick me off with? I do. Actually, I have two fun pieces of trivia. Oh, so not Uno, but Due. Due. Um, three, cuatro, cinco, seis. No, I'm not going to. That's That's been going way back into primary <laughs> school, and that, that's when that education ends right there. Um, no, well, I got one related to the film, so I'll, I'll mention that first. And then I got one related to the podcast, which I think is kind of nifty. Um, but no, this is in regard to... Uh, I, I was surprised to read this because you got The Irishman, which is Scorsese's... It feels like he's swan song to, like, you know, the the gangster films mm-hmm. that he's so well known for. And we kind of think of Goodfellas as the one that's sort of the, the pinnacle. It's right there in the middle. A lot of people consider it the high point in his career. So I was surprised to read that at the time, Scorsese had actually sworn off making gangster films prior to deciding to do Goodfellas. And it was when he found the original book, Wise Guys, by Nicholas... Paiogi, Paiogi, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and he was so, I guess, enamored by the book that he cold called the author, and told him, "I've been waiting for this book all my life." To which he replied on the other end of the phone, "I've been waiting for this phone call all of my life." <laughs> so it started a very interesting collaboration between the two. Of course, they co-wrote the scripts together for the film. And um, what a script! What a script! What a what a film! <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. What about you, Zeke? What's your fun fact? Well, that's pretty tough to top. Mm. Um, but, you know, you're talking about the film's authenticity, yes. um, which I find really interesting there. Obviously, having the author give this account and then obviously having them conceive the screenplay. Well, he, that's not the only bit of authenticity in the film. Mm. You've got Robert De Niro. So, one scene in which he hands Jimmy uh, money, he felt like he required not prop money. Um, in fact, he actually was given by the prop master $5,000 of his own money. Um, during this filming of this scene, at the end of each take, no one was allowed to leave the set until all the money was returned mm. and accounted for. So, no wise guys no. on the set of Goodfellas. It's a few things there. Number one, kudos to the prop guy for having five grand just on him, yeah. on his person. In yeah. 1990. Don't ask questions. <laughs> Don't ask questions. Exactly. Where'd that come from? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to ask that question. Um, but the other one, I, I totally 100% understand the, like, all right, lock the set down. No one's moving a muscle until the money comes. As someone who used $2,000 of their own money on a film recently mm. uh, and thought that he had lost quite a lot of it between shoot dates, I totally... <laughs> Where'd it go? understand... I it, I just I think I um I think part of it got lost in the envelope when I went to count it later. Mm. 
But yeah, there's a point. There's a point in Skin and Blister where there's real money being held in front of the lens, and that was two thousand dollars of my real money that I spent a good few hours being really terrified that I had lost. <laughs> and uh, no, we had a good crew. Yes, it never resorted to the Facebook message of. Where's my money? <laughs> <laughs> Although there were a lot of jokes about Bethany holding the money, being like, yeah. well, that's your pay, right? <laughs> You're going to keep that. It's your pay for the film. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, that is that is very interesting. I did. Well, see you're a funny guy, well. Jake. I am. I am a very funny guy. How yeah. funny? Just a funny guy. Oh, fair enough. Do you want to hear my other fun facts? Absolutely. So this is to do with the podcast. This is coincidental. I swear we didn't do this on purpose. Like. So, of course, we did uh, The Return of the King, Lord of the Rings, last mm-hmm. week, which, if you go on Letterboxd, it's actually rated 19 in the top 250 Letterboxd narrative films of all time. Which is like, wow, that's, that's high praise. Yeah. What's even more impressive is that this week's film, Goodfellas, is rated number 20. Oh, so, we'll look at it. We're going in chronological order, baby. <laughs> well, I don't know if the film next week will hit 21, but we shall see. No. I mean, it might. It might in the time that <laughs> it takes to prepare that episode. That's very true. Yeah, actually, that, that's quite likely. Well, it is Monday. It's every Monday they update the list, so you never know. Yeah, you never know. Well, speaking of mm. lists, Jake, is there anything that you've caught in the last week that might add to your TV or movie lists mm. for twenty twenty three? I would say no, simply because the only thing I watched in the last week was it was a rewatch seek. Okay. As you know, I don't. I almost started doing. It. I was like, should I start logging Letterbox films when I rewatch them? Mm. And I don't want to because I don't want it to start. If I start changing my star rating, and I don't want to get too messy. Yeah, yeah. I've liked keeping it clean. If yeah. I do a rewatch, I just if I change the star rating, it'll be a not logged change. Yeah, because just... I I did that for the two towers. Because for the podcast, I watched the extended edition for the first time. And I bumped the rating. I gave it another half star review because I quite enjoyed the extended edition even more. But I was like, ah, "But how's this going to look now when someone like checks my profile? Is it going to come up with the earlier score or the newer score? Is it going to be clear why I did?" You know what I mean? Is even just that mm. I wasn't a fan of doing. But uh, no. But it it is partly to do with Letterbox that I rewatched. I rewatched it with Kirsty because she's never seen Whiplash before. Which I thought was absolutely crazy. As a music teacher, I think she needs to watch this film. So, episode 63 <laughs> to 64. I figured, yeah, because we had Stephen on the show to discuss it. and um, So you can go back to that podcast and listen to our thoughts. And I don't really have much more to say about Whiplash. It's still excellent, phenomenal, incredible, exhilarating, yep. relentless. Um, all of those things I can think of, except the only thing I want to mention that I thought was interesting this time around of, and and Kirsty loved it, by the way. I was a little worried because it is <laughs> it is intense to an extent, but I I think she loved it. She had enough because I asked him like, "Were well, you gonna, are you going to implement any of Fletcher's uh, methods into your own teaching?" <laughs> Which I, I don't think she's going to. Um, but what I found interesting this time around, and we talked about it on that original podcast, this idea that the film sort of ends on this weird, almost taboo side of the argument is, is all the abuse that Miles Teller's character sort of endures and, and takes on. It's almost like rewarded by the end of the film. It's not like clearly stated that, oh, you know, there's a way to become a great musician without all this horrible stuff happening. It kind of infers you almost do need that, which is an interesting 
note to end the film on, and I think it's wonderful that it opens it up for discussion as to, to mm. why the film... But what I found so interesting is watching that, having now seen his latest film, Damien Chazelle's Babylon, and kind of realising it does a similar thing. Without spoiling the ending of Babylon, that film kind of also has this ideology of torments and, and you know, drug-crazed lunatics and violence and, you know, people killing themselves and all this crazy stuff that happens in Babylon... And yet the film ends on this note of, isn't cinema great? <laughs> isn't this all worth it? Yeah. Yeah, so I just thought it was interesting to see, you know, Chazelle's sort of ideology is still consistent across 10 years of, of I guess, eight. Eight film. Eight years of film. Yeah. Because La La Land... A remarkable yeah. director to sort of talk about. Because, mm. yeah, I guess La La Land has the downer ending, but also has yeah. the... The sort of optimistic yes. alternative timeline. First Man kind of has a bit of an empty ending, really. Well, First Man is just a weird one in general yeah. in his filmography. It sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. And like I love that he went for it. I'm like, oh, that's very interesting. But you're right. It's like thematically, stylistically, it's a strange one. An anomaly, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's that's very fair. That's very fair. Well, it's yeah. a good rewatch. Um Look, I can say I've caught uh, drips and drabs. Yep. Um, I actually, you know, I'm continuing in the Star Wars world, which we're not going to explore in too much detail. I've, I've watched season two. <laughs> um, I've watched pretty much all of season two of The Bad Batch, which yep. is the animated sort of spiritual successor to the Clone Wars show and, and Rebels. And it's good. I mean, I love that animation style, so sure. I get a lot out of that experience. It's very similar to Clone Wars. Very similar. Yeah. So Rebels is a little bit, almost took on a more childish sort of interpretation of the same art style. Okay. Um, whereas those two will have this weird sort of, uh, I, I'm no um, uh, expert on animation styles, sure. or, um, but very similar in terms of their palette and direction. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bad Batch and Clone Wars, almost, like I said, has that sequel spiritual sequel aspect to it sure it's good it's good um but i'll talk more about a thing that i'd watched in a whole okay which was season three of only murders in the building ah Uh, that that wrapped up uh yeah wrapped up and they've been greenlit for season four i did see that um yeah god it's that has become the show you know you've been talking about over the last couple of months how you've been getting Kirsty to go through and and do um better call saw and breaking yeah. bad and forcing her a gunpoint <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean we haven't done the the gunpoint stuff loose loves her um murder mysteries hence why we did yeah. the uh poro uh death on the nile and haunting in venice in the yeah. last couple of weeks and um when only murders dropped so the first season we watched it sort of curious you know i think selena gomez was the reason she watched it i'm sure. watching it because of Stephen martin yeah steve martin and, and martin short and their dynamic because i like that sort of old traditional comedy and and mm. it's kind of that perfect blend that first season the second season is is that kind of step up we start to see more stars coming in but nothing mm. quite as big as this season that had meryl streep in it and paul rudd um, oh it was paul rudd in it too yeah interesting I remember, I remember you... So this is a few weeks ago. I think you started the third season. Yes. So sort of Drips and Drabs, and you were worried that she was going to be like the obvious... I mean, you don't have to spoil it. No. But did, did it... Were you relieved that it wasn't maybe so Incredibly, ob- yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's yeah. a really solid season. And to be honest, the hook for season four, 
the I'm going to take a flex on this. The start okay. of the final episode, because I knew that they'd been greenlit for season four, and I'm wondering right. who's the person that gets murdered to enable season four, because normally you see mm. the murder occur the end of the previous season. Gotcha. And that sort of uh, enables uh, who dies, uh, who's what season four about. Yep. I called who was going to get killed oh, off. Oh, very nice. Um, and I was very dun, chuffed dun, when it happened. Dun. And I was like, because it makes sense, because I was like... You're looking broke, at it from I, the analytical point of view. What what narratively makes sense well, for the rest of the show? who's a compelling character to kill off that doesn't affect the dynamics of the show? Right. And oh, you're onto it. Over the course of the seasons. And I picked it perfectly. And I was like, <laughs> so chuffed. And I'm keen. And I'm so bummed, because we probably won't get season four until... Ah, uh, God. What do you reckon? End of 2024, maybe? Maybe. If it's that, hard to say because... 2025? Obviously, um, the, the Writers Guild, their strike is finally finished. They've come to a new agreement. It seems the writers have won. We actually haven't really talked about this much the last couple of weeks. No. I'm sort of hoping that SAG would also sort of tie up their strike, and it, it looks like, no, in fact, they actually are more divided than ever. So I, I have no idea when the strike's going to end now. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's hard to say. They can start writing it. Yep. They can get season four, at least the scripts in the can and sort of ready to jump into production the second that the actors are back on on track. But yeah, it's, an, it's it, tricky. It's amazing how it's had the legs. I mean, we've, on three seasons that have had ten, nine, and nine episodes, uh, all very entertaining, mm. very compelling characters have developed. Like. Each season for me has has been a B or higher in terms yep. of grade. Like it is, there. It's just a really good, solid show. Mm. Um, and the the bringing in of you know we just talked about Mel Brooks as like a cameo of Mel Brooks. There's a lot. Oh, of, that's good. There's a lot of character actors that are playing themselves. Matthew Broderick is playing Matthew Broderick nice. in this, which is kind of hilarious. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think it what it is is we're we're seeing Martin Short and 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 um, Steve Martin's sort of sort of bookending their kind of comedy aspects of their mm. career, and they have talked about it that they came up with the idea and they needed someone that was kind of in that younger the dynamic of having the younger person. Yeah, and Selena Gomez is, is kind of perfectly cast in that that role. Mm. She kind of is the right kind of actress to have in that role someone who is well known but not necessarily well known for acting um mm. i think is is it kind of has made this perfect sort of dynamic and and it's just a fun show it's a show that you absolutely can just watch with your partner and just enjoy from start to finish it's yeah. a great day. well it's like you said like you've got different actors that are appealing to different demographics so they watch it together and yeah. So it seems like it ticks a lot of boxes that way. Yeah. I mean, it, it's got the legs. I mean, you're into season four now, and it doesn't look like it's slowing down. Yeah. Um. It's no. They've said it's renewed for season four, so I can't see it. That's great. Um, losing legs. Yeah. So that was pretty much it. I did watch the first two of four parts for Beckham. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, mainly. I like. Of, I've yeah, seen the one little clip. clip everyone's. <laughs> Of his wife being like, we were working class. And he just runs in. He's like, no, we're not. What's, uh, <laughs> don't, what's your, don't what lie to your the camera. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know what? Look, I've. So it I sort was... of breaks the fourth wall almost in that moment where they're ripping their own interviews apart to see their dynamic. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. And they are, they truly are a remarkable dynamic, but it obviously it's chartering David Beckham's career from mm. getting, um, sort of becoming an Academy player at Manchester United and, 
the first two parts basically talk about his uh, sort of infamous World Cup moment where he gets red carded and then England gets eliminated and then England turns on him and Look, I like my sports docu-series and documentaries. I, I think that's been interesting. Um, it's definitely, obviously, a part of that particular sporting history I didn't know too much about. Sure. Um, a lot of us kind of know the name David and, and Victoria Beckham, but mm. don't really... Under, obviously, it's way more about David. Um, but don't really... Especially our generation that... You know, I mean, he started playing the year we were born. Like, ah, okay. That's um, a cool little trivia fact. So, or at least like his most famous goal that kind of put it, I think he played a couple, he started playing a couple of years before that. But um, yeah, it it was interesting because it's a name you're synonymous with, but you don't really know too much about him unless sure. you were a soccer fan, which obviously being Australian, you don't grow up being a soccer fan. You kind of... No. Well, we, I'm Portuguese descent. Yeah. So we definitely have a lot of soccer blood and, you know, Ronaldo and everything yeah. like that. So there's a little bit of that in the family, but I'm just not a sports person generally. Yeah. So that's kind of where my lack of knowledge comes from. So, but I did watch Bend It Like Beckham. Yeah. Is that mentioned at I all? I watched Goal that? 2. No, He's in Goal 2. <laughs> I saw Kicking and Screaming with Will Ferrell. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I watched Goal 3 and I went, what happened? Um... <laughs> That is that is a franchise that genuinely fell off a cliff. Mm. Like Goal is a good like mid to good film. Yeah. Goal two continues the trend, really opens up for for Goal three, which I don't know what happened. <laughs> the funding got cut. I I genuinely I've got to sit down one day and research what happened. Interesting. I've never seen a trilogy do like like good start, yeah, plateauing, but then cliff like that. A lot of people say the Godfather is. Like, you would fight over which is better out of one and two, and then the third one just kind of... Yeah. Although the new, I'm the new cliff cuts... Die. Right, I see. Like, just completely... Like, like I'm Some talk- people would argue that. I wouldn't, but some would for Godfather. People okay. hate the third one. Hate it. Yeah. Yeah, so, I'm not yeah. talking like a Return of the Jedi dip. Like, a, like right. a, it's not as good as the other two, obviously, yeah, yeah. but... It's still no, cool. I know what you mean. Like, it just c- crashes. Yeah, I've got to. I've got to. Sh- what I've got to do is I've got to show you visuals from Goal and then Goal Two oh, and then Goal Three. Is that all I need because to see? To, to they like. <laughs> it's interesting because in the first film, this is not too much of tangent. It's to do with soccer. We're talking about soccer, guys. It's yeah, fine. Um, or football. And I really like Goal. <laughs> I think it's a really good. It was one of those films they were like they shot when the Premier League games were going, and they take their their two main actors, and they would like have them kind of like celebrating in the stadiums after a Newcastle game. Cause the first film's about Newcastle. Right. And then sometimes they would composite them and they do little things and that. And in the second film, they're playing for Real Madrid and they do similar stuff with a little bit more compositing, not so much on field stuff, mm. way more off field stuff. Then the third film tries to introduce the idea of the world cup, but it has visuals. I remember watching it. I was so excited and I was like, what happened? Like the compositing became like amateurish. And right. Didn't really make any sense. And maybe, maybe Jaws, Jaws 1, 2, 3. Yeah. Oh, but I guess people probably don't like 2 either. 2 is pretty mid. But like even, so this is, this is unusual. Kirstie's seen all the trilogy of Jaws 1, 2, and yeah. 3. I've only seen the first one, of course. And the way she describes it, it sounds like one obviously one is one Jaws is Jaws but then the two like two's fine third one is atrocious like yeah. so that I, I can see that but I'm looking at the letterbox scores for the goal trilogy and yeah you start at 3.1 so it's very solid respectable and then you jump to 2.6 so it's like okay it's starting to lose some momentum and the final one is 1.5 
Yeah. So it, it seems Letterbox is representing your argument pretty accurately. Yeah. And I, I think that's pretty that's pretty harsh. I would have gone like three and a half, three, and then one. Like, yeah, there's <laughs> a big difference. But you know what? No one's ever. Some people just aren't happy with sport films. It's like, how do you? I guess now Ted Lasso's kind of replaced the the soccer right. vibe, at least. Mm. Um, God, I gotta watch that third season. But that's pretty much all I watched this this week. Yeah, no, no, no. I like the way you put it. Sort of drips and drabs everywhere. Yes. Yeah. I not like not it. any not too neat. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. It doesn't have to be too neat. I really wanted to watch, I think, the, like those Wes Anderson shorts that have all started dropping on Netflix. Yeah, I've got to I got to sit down and watch them. I wouldn't mind doing that because it's probably like an hour and a half across the four. I think it's four films that they dropped. So I was, mm. I was hoping to do that in the last week. I didn't have time, but maybe maybe in the next week. Very exciting. Do you have any career updates before we move in the second half of the show? Um, oh, not really. I sent you a, a post, a template poster. Yes. A secret poster. Secret, secret poster. Yeah. So, yeah, that was fun. I will say, Zeke, that post it is the first time I've tried AI on anything. You were happy with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I did a lot of fiddling. A lot of fiddling, but it was a lot of generative feel, generative feel, like started over and over and over again. But it did a really great job. Because here's the thing. You think about the disconnected poster. That's a, a horizontal screen grab from the film, 16 by 9 that's centered and then the top and bottom of the poster I like manually had to recreate and artificially create mm-hmm. extend like the walls so it all like stretched out properly and uh, I'm doing a very similar thing here except it's the bottom of the poster that's the real 16 by 9 image and then everything above it like the whole two thirds of the top of the poster is generative fill with like Crazy. fixing fixing things and blending things and coloring and all of that um, it is so convenient because it turns like a three-week job into a, a half an hour I've job. I've loved... I really want to play around with... I've seen some insane ones where they've had, like, characters on the right frame of the screen. Mm. And this is, like, a video version, not just a still image. But, like, yep. they'll... What they'll do is they'll have the characters walking towards, like, something. Right. And because of the perspective of the camera, they're able to then, like, take a screenshot from some point during the sequence. Mm. Uh, generative fill like the left hand side of the frame and the sky and stuff like right. to make like a, a bomb shelter so it looks like they're walking towards this bomb shelter interesting and as long as obviously they don't interact with the second half of the screen mm. like it cuts away it looks like legit like yeah. it's insane and you're just like because all they've had to do then is then they've just taken the screenshot put it on top of it and then just cropped it so it the characters on the right hand side yeah, are walking yeah. towards the the left-hand side of the frame, and you're just, like, blown away, and I just want to do it myself. I want to, like, take a <laughs> shot of, like, a character walking towards, like, the empty horizon and then just fill the horizon with, like, yeah distant cities. Well, that's kind of what it is, because I was going through images in the film, like, what's, like, a good poster? And and I, I was thinking of doing, you know, kind of like your sci-fi fantasy things where you have, like, several elements that all sort of wedged together. And I was thinking of, like, what, what are the important items in the film and how can I create those? And then it, it simply became that. of like, oh, I really like this image. Man, I wish there was more. You could see more of it. And I was like, oh, well, let's try that. And you're right. It, just, it beautifully creates everything around it. And it's it's just so convenient. I mean, that's the that's the key word, the horrifying word, convenient. convenient. And every, the more convenient something gets, the, the less, I guess, artistry is involved, the less, I don't know. Like, there's, there's something well, about... I didn't mind because it's, like, it's using my image. Yeah. 
well, my, I mean, obviously it's Blake's image. He shot it, but like, I mean, the whole crew, everyone worked on it, but like, it's using that source image that was painstakingly created in real life and then using that to motivate the rest of it, which is something, like I said, years ago, it took me weeks to do that and make it look okay. The counter-argument is that, yeah, I mean, it's it does make things more convenient, but at the same time, it, it opens up creative avenues mm-hmm. too. I mean, like at the end of the day, we were there for five days filming that film. Like, yeah. AI didn't do that. Like, no, exactly. Um, and I know that there's this whole thing now, like, I mean, I don't know if you've seen any of the Project Runway stuff with Volume no. 2 where um, you basically can... Uh, film yourself doing something and then it will composite the 3D render over the top of oh, it. Oh, I think I do know what you're talking um, about. Yeah, that's that's phenomenal. It's just insane. And I, I mean, I've only used bits and bobs of it, but it's like, um, it's just wild to think yeah. about where it's going. But, it, you know, it's... And it's going to be a topic we're going to be talking about more and more. Yeah. Like, it's not going away. I mean, we've talked about it briefly with writer's strikes and stuff, but... Mm. You know, I mean, the fact that it's getting to the point where, realistically, through some of these engines, people can make full-blown sci-fi films. I know Corridor yeah. Crew have, have tried to apply Project Runway to um, their own sort of films sometimes mm. to see, sort of push its limits and all that. Um, there is a video from Austin McConnell, who I've shouted at, shouted at many times on this podcast, where he... He, he so he did a he did like an hour long animated video that was basically a big promo for a book that he had written, and a lot of people got very upset because they could find all like the AI elements in it, mm. like the voice was AI and there was a lot of AI backgrounds and things like that. And he did like a thirty plus minute video response to it, basically breaking down like the ethics of using AI in in, in a way that I didn't even like fathom prior to that and, and like to what extent has a form of AI been in all of the things that we've done um, uh, he ends the video with this anecdote about his like professor from film school many many years ago that refused to shoot digital films would only shoot on film and what the the case ended up being is he passed away making very little because of that you know that rule that he had established for himself is I refuse to work digital and well, you have the tools there and, you know, so long as you're right, you're not hurting anyone specifically. Because mm. this is this is another moral thing is I fully intended until recently to have someone else do not only the poster but, like, paint it. I wanted, like, an oil painting or a watercoloured painting of the poster. And it just got to the point where it's like, I just can't afford it. Yeah. Like, I'm so broke. I'm on the far end of this film. And at the end of the day, it's like I'm at the point where the money's going to go into the actual film. And I can do the as as much as it sucks. I love the authenticity of it, but there was a point when I was just like, I can do this myself in Photoshop. Yep. And so it, once I decided, okay, well, I'm going to be the one to do it. Then I'm going to determine how it gets done, how much AI is involved, mm-hmm. how much is not. So it's it's just interesting that in this past week was the first instance where I actually utilized AI. Finally saw it for like, oh wow, like I'm finally seeing a really impressive use of AI. Mm-hmm in my work and um to what point morally and financially do i want to continue down this road it's a, i gotta be careful 
Yeah, I'd be really careful. But you can turn into Spielberg. <laughs> too much, too much CGI. <laughs> turn into George Lucas. It's happening, Zeke. It's happening. It's happening. <laughs> the process has begun. Well, oh, it's time for God. us to move into our film of the week. We're going for a film that didn't use too much CGI. No, haven't used any that I could think of off the top of my head. There's that. There's that scene when um, uh, De Niro is flying through the sky. Do you remember that? On the magic carpet. Yeah, that was CGI. Yeah. But Jake, what's this Robert De Niro film we're watching? (laughs) As we're going to show Zeke, we're watching Goodfellas. (laughs) (laughs) You're a big guy. Really funny. Really funny. Uh, What do you mean I'm funny? (laughs) It's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. (laughs) What do you mean? You mean the way I talk? What? It's just, you know, you, it's, you're just funny. It's, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? Yeah, Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. He's... Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? You're right. Funny how? Just, what? Just, you know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> you mean, so? let me understand this, because, you know, maybe it's me. I'm a little fucked up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? I'm not just... You know how you tell a story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the fuck out of here, Tommy. You <laughs> motherfucker. I almost had him. I almost had him. Stuttering, yeah, stuttering prick yet. Frankie, was he shaking? I wonder about you sometimes, Henry. You may fold under questioning. Jesus Christ. Oh. What the fuck is it with you? I thought I was getting pitched over here. He's hanging on my fucking neck like a vulture. Like a pending day. What do you want? The true story of Henry Hill, a half rich, half Sicilian Brooklyn kid who was adopted by neighborhood gangsters at an early age and climbs through the ranks of the mafia under the guidance of one Jimmy Conway. I guess that's accurate. He was sort of his main mentor. They make a point of that at the start of the film. Yeah. Yeah, and it definitely obviously shifts from that sort of mentor-esque to like a treble. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, look, um, this is a film that's been mm. sort of stewing and sitting in the cinema sideshow Purgatory. <laughs> um, Forever considered having already been covered for, a, for yeah. a long time. The amount of time... Well, this first came up... I can't remember which episode it was, maybe 10, 20 weeks ago when... I think we just started like going through directors and how many times have we covered that director's work. And yeah. Scorsese was up there. I mean, I think Spielberg was number one. Mm-hmm. Um, Linklater's up there. Yes. And I think Scorsese, definitely in the next couple of weeks, is going to be back maybe on top. Who knows? Um, but you, you remember then, you were guessing which films we had done. You so confidently said Goodfellas. And I was like, no, we haven't done it yet. And then again, I think last two weeks ago, just again, we confidently were like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. So it just, it. you're right, purgatory is a good way to describe where it's been sitting in this podcast the, history. The time has come, though. It has come. So, um, look, I mean, the, the, like we said, we sort of started the, the conversation in the first half of the show where we're talking about The Irishman, which was a film that we did cover on the show. Many moons ago. Um, 
and was covered in such a, a unique experience for us because obviously that was back when um, a lot of the, the streaming-based films were sort of uh, condensed to their very small runs mm. and that's only sort of changed a little bit and we're obviously, you know, it's changed with the most recent Scorsese film coming out um, because they wanted to keep the windows really tight on these, uh, at the time, very much emerging uh sort of streaming platforms really starting to become quite ironclad in in pop culture mm. back in 2018 to what five years ago um and we got to see that in in backlot which was a really we cool did. experience um and this film is sort of the the perfect mirrored reflection like you said the bookends uh to the scorsese gangster picture yeah well it's um, it's interesting because like I've seen films like Who's That Knocking at My Door, which was his debut, and then Mean Streets, of course, is a big one. Robert De Niro is uh, also in that, of course. So, it, it, it like, this feels like the combination of those films in terms of, like, the mob stories and especially, like, the New York uh, Italian family dynamics and sort yeah. of the childhood that, I guess, Scorsese grew up. And there's all these, you know, funny stories around of how, you know, um, Scorsese's mother would go around and be like, we didn't swear that much. I swear we didn't swear that... <laughs> When, and I didn't realize this was the film that had the most f bombs of all time, which is not the case anymore. No. Wolf of Wall Street's topped it. <laughs> um, There's an f bomb, like two f bombs per minute, in Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, well, I think it's a similar number here as well. And and I didn't f- think about it. I guess like, we just associate Scorsese mob films with just you know an asinine amount of swearing. Yeah. And I didn't realize it would have been a big deal at the time. And we're not talking about like Hayes Code era films. We're in the we're in the early nineties now. Yep. And we we've already gone through a bit of a recent res, Oh my god. Renaissance. Renaissance. I'm trying to add in syllables there. Jesus. Um, you know, with the seventies and the auteurs of that time, which includes Scorsese. So, um, I mean that's an interesting aspect to it as well. But yeah, this does kind of feel like the combination of those films and it's clearly the one that's left the biggest uh footprint on society or in the Mm. zeitgeist if you will because people to this day still talk about goodfellas being one of the greatest films of all time yeah would you agree with that assessment i think so i think i think to be honest watching it this time it's different because you undergo different viewing experiences you Mm. know it's a film that although the first time i watched it would have been maybe six seven years ago mm. you know when you're a, a younger man in particular like, like that sort of age you know you look at that stuff and think it's really really cool mm. it's your same experience when you watch wolf of wall street for the first time which came out in 2014 so we're 16 17 at that time which mm. is sort of just the perfect time to watch <laughs> wolf of wall street because you know that whole idea of wolf of wall street for a a teenage boy is like the it's like the coolest thing ever yeah. and, and this film's definitely do it it's like the 1990s sort of equivalent and even the gangster movie equivalent mm. you know and that's deliberate that's that's an intentional um aspect and direction scorsese's gone particularly and the writing you know we talked about the writing in the first half of the show but that's embodied through that character of henry hill this mm. half sicilian half irish person that romanticizes and and he's enamoured by the culture of the mafia. Mm. Um, from a from a contextual point of view, which you know that's the uh, the eyes of the audience looking in at this 
time where it was about big families and 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 sort of the 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 gangster aspects beating people up getting people's money you know uh just absolutely uh, ball busting people through yeah. through the city streets in this uh, time where police almost seemed to either cooperate or were powerless to contend with and um i think that it's uh, it's a cool film first and foremost but when you watch it it's it's got so much artistry in it too yeah. and and a bit of non-sequential storytelling having a, a a random point a midpoint in the film but a a, a a point that changes the course of history in the second half of the film mm. it really is a true uh, midpoint in terms of uh, or a crossroads moment to start the film on and um you know you go from that to these big sweeping one shots and and camera motions and um having the different perspective changing yeah. you know there's so much going on in this film mm. um that could easily get because it's set over it's like three decades three three decades 50s to 80s i think and obviously the ray Liotta portion i think is just over i think it's 10 to 15 years technically mm. technically the ending is, is is 15 years after i believe he comes in at 1970 and finishes up by about 1985 1986 so and obviously the younger ray Liotta, the teenage mm. um henry hill uh, is uh, the first? I think the first forty minutes of the film, isn't he? Is, is oh, I don't think it's maybe, that, maybe that long. long. Twenty-five minutes, maybe. Maybe, yeah. It's um. Well, it's it's interesting because, like you said, we do start with that immediate res scene, and we don't understand the context of what's going on there. But for me, it's like that's our introduction to Henry Hill. Is not the young child enamored with the gangster life, and we'll get into that in a minute. But what what I saw was you know a guy driving a car who's he seems he's quiet he's tired he's disillusioned mm. and they you know hear the sound coming out of the boot and it, it you know we get that first freeze frame of him after the, you know the 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 person we go on to find out later in the boot is stabbed and shot and violently murdered and it freeze frames freeze frames on him just kind of i think disillusion is the best word and the first hint we get at him is is a version of him that is almost scared and tired of this life even though everything else about this film suggests that he's enamored by it and that's mm. when we you know cut to the earlier in his life when he's he's enamored by you know the, the mobster lifestyle and the respect that comes with it and just like the the clothes and the the, the connections you make those are all really important parts uh to henry's fascination mm. with this lifestyle um and 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 it kind of also got like you said we get like a glimpse at where are the police and all this, whether they're bribed off or scared off or whatever it is. And I think the film sort of looks at it from an interesting angle where it, it's not very focused on like the economics of the crime life. Mm. Like we don't see a lot of the heists that go on in dramatic detail or like autobiographical detail. It's really just sort of a glimpse. And, and I think that's coming from young Henry's perspective of he's kind of ignoring all those rules and the economics behind those things he's excited about the other things that are going on the attractive parts of of the mob lifestyle mm. so i really like how that's all portrayed and and like you said it's it's very unique because scorsese he's doing all i didn't realize how many freeze frames there were in this film there's tons there's even like vox pox at some point when you've got one of those big ones going through the bar and he's sort of he's running off all the names and everyone's what well, everyone's names either Holy or or 
What's That's the other? Or Peter, Peter Polly, Apollo, or P- Peter. Peter Apollo. But I love that almost every single person we meet in this big swooping wanna is looking directly at the camera and has like their little quip. And I, and I love just like Scorsese constantly breaking the fourth wall. And I don't think he did any of that or like the energetic quick editing he does in Mean Streets, for example. So this is him really trying something different and it just working right out oh, the yeah. gate. I mean, and then you take it that step further, you know, we're looking at things like King of Comedy or even Taxi Driver where, no, that stuff is a, it's a, it's a slow burn, mm. really. I mean, there's no, it very much is this chronological sequence of events. There's no back and forth jumping. There's yeah. no pausing. There's no like, oh, I'm telling the like I'm, I'm Henry Hill of, uh, Roughly, I mean, there's kind of it's kind of difficult to see where the narration is coming from. Is it coming from all the way? I, I assume it's right at the end. The narration's all past tense, really. It's not mm. contemporary or anything. It's him reflecting on his whole life and yeah. the events that transpired to lead to where Henry ends up at the end of the film. I think the last like VO is like present tense. Yeah, the fact that he is a schmuck now, and you're right, and everything else is past tense. But I think yeah. a lot of those voiceovers, and I think Scorsese talked about why those are so important, is they came directly from the book. Mm. They're very much his words, like not regurgitated, like one-to-one represented to the audience. So again, it goes back to what you were saying earlier with authenticity. So I think that that's his way of the real Henry Hill seeping his way into this screenplay. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> um... <laughs> And it is. It, like you said, it has this flow. I mean, it, it could be a film that easily could fall into the trap of just being this massive audiobook expositional dr- dump. Mm. Like, because there's so many characters. And um, the reality is, it's this perfect balance that um, Scorsese has where he's able to introduce characters and give characters moments, but not make the audience feel overwhelmed by the sheer number of characters mm. there are. I mean,. At any given time, there's only two or three characters, well, particularly three or four characters that you ever have to give, um, follow along with because they're interchangeable. I mean, Henry's at the centre of all of them, sure. but the it's interchangeability. In the earlier stages, it's Henry's relationship, particularly with, with Paulie and, mm. and, and Jimmy, and then that morphs more into the relationship between Jimmy, Tommy, and um and uh, henry and at times that'll interchange it'll be the the dynamic between henry or jimmy uh maury and uh henry you know it, mm. like it, it, the, depending on uh, what point in the story it is henry's sort of main drama characters sort of morph and change and at its core it is the dynamic between tommy henry and and um jimmy, jimmy. yeah but there are characters that kind of float in and float out depending on where we are in the story. You know, when Maurice is the one who's like comes up with the idea for the biggest heist in American history, <laughs> mm. he's important to that part of the story. And he's also important to that part of the story because of his relationship to Henry and Henry's wife and and that relationship too. So yeah. And that's on that's on Scorsese to weave through decades of stories and to find find all the characters and how they succinctly come in and out of the story. So it and and I know for me a lot of these beats I mean, you know, there's the stuff with the heist and obviously after um, a lot of them incarcerated and they, they come out of prison and you got you got Jimmy abusing everyone for spending <laughs> spending their money after the heist. But it's for me, a lot of those beat the more important beats are 
characters that become unstable, characters become overly violent and, and um, not necessarily like a split personality, but you, know, you look at Tommy and just some of the absolute rampages he goes on really unprovoked. I mean, there's a little bit, you know, there's a little bit going on there, but I think for me, it was always looking at it from Henry's perspective. Like there's these moments where, Oh God, what have I done when Tommy just like ruthlessly kills, you know, a made man or he kills spider because of, he made like an offhanded comment. <laughs> yeah. And for me, it's all those moments, like how deep the, this family run together and and I'm not unlike the Godfather, family is such an important part of the story. Mm. Um, but there is a priority there, and then when that priority takes precedence, then people start acting paranoid and scared and frightened, and start they start doing things. People start dying. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot of death in this film. <laughs> Just a few deaths doesn't doesn't shy away from that. But like I like what you're kind of talking about. There is this this slow progression into unst- um, uh, having a lack of stability and madness and paranoia and mm. we actually kind of see it seep into every character in one way or another where it's you know we, we watch Henry sort of succumb to uh, drug addiction mm. and you know think that the helicopter's following him and which it actually was <laughs> so it's like but it comes back to you know that sort of slow decline into madness because of substance abuse or like you said when the the heist is successful jimmy becomes incredibly paranoid about that he's got so much money that he doesn't want anyone spending it or mm. to the point where he kills everyone involved with the heist to create distance or yeah. or Tommy's uh, disillusionment of the untouchable nature of, of being in, in the mafia, the fact that mm. he feels like he can readily kill made men or, or children of, of, of people, young sort of, sort of understudy people. Mm. And, you know, he, he was meets... killing will and nilly and, and not expecting there to be any consequences. Yeah. He's above it all. Really? The reality is we see all three of them kind of succumb to, a consequence at one point or another they all get their comeuppance and this is that i think the film's trying to talk about the inevitability of the good times don't last forever mm. in this lifestyle and unless you're steady and calm and ruthless and it's kind of funny that uh, throughout this whole story you know we watch from the very beginning this young henry idolizing poorly and and then sort of going under the stewardship of 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 jimmy and mm. Um, and then becoming befriending Tommy is is the last one standing out out of that that quadrant is Paulie, mm. the steady sort of calm person that, as as he said, you know, like there's little bits trickled in there. The fact that he doesn't use uh, a phone line, or mm. or the fact that every bit of information he receives firsthand, it doesn't yeah. go through the grapevine sort of one. Mm. And it's interesting because it's that sort of generational difference i guess between and we kind of see it in the irishman where we see these that's true yeah these mobsters that sort of outlast time you know so i guess de niro and pesci get their their <laughs> their long-lived mafioso lifestyle eventually after many many years they, they finally get their moment um, um which in itself is very maturely handled in the irishman but i think you're right that's a point that i didn't think about but the generational aspect of the fact that Polly is sort of the more cautious one, the more reserved one, and that um, even though we, we look up to Jimmy and, and that you know, he doesn't look a day over 28 or 29, um, 
that he also succumbs to that paranoia and, and just, yeah. like, whacking people just out of his own uh, preservation, I suppose. And in a sense, what Henry does at the end of the film is also out of self-preservation when he rats on everyone. Yeah. Henry, I mean, Henry at the end of this looks like crap. Oh, yeah. And is <laughs> he undergoes very similar to the Jordan Belford Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. He is, you really, the most interesting aspect of the films across a lot of Scorsese's, and I know it's not a director's corner, but it's so interesting with his catalogue, is he takes these truly unlikable characters mm. that are unlikable at the start, but then fools you into thinking they're likable only to kind of revert you or likable compelling or you can empathize with them or relate to them and then completely pulling you back out yeah no they were disillusioned and and kind of horrible the whole time and you were silly for believing it and he does it so much i mean he does it in taxi driver Mm. he does it in in king of comedy where you're like oh well this character seems completely reasonable abducting a host and (laughs) taking them hostage because he wants his moment and then you know he takes it that step further raging bull oh well this is you know his sort of mentality is is because of other people and other factors and other abuses that he cops in his life and Mm. he can't help that no he's actually just kind of a horrible person good fellas oh well he always wanted to be a gangster and we've all kind of as a kid fantasized about being a gangster being a bad boy um (laughs) and um i think it's because he tells all of his stories with such conviction and you know you hear the the famous sort of saying from people who play villains is that the only way to play a villain is is to play him as if you're what you're doing is the right thing you can't play a villain as if you're self-aware that you're a a villain there's very few performances that work that way Mm. and i guess in the same way that scorsese writes and directs these characters is it is with that conviction and that you know there's a reality in here there's a reason these characters did it and we're all human there's something in there that's relatable that's that's a tr- and for most of the characters in this film it's not only it's henry it's it's carol as well we get a whole i was shocked and I, I saw this film years ago for the first time and i was just as shocked now as i was then at i forgot how much carol plays a huge role in the story how much of her point of view we get her narration it's a dual uh, it's a dual narrative with henry because she's also sort of sedated to this life or not sedated but succumbs succumb and and attracted to this this crime life and i think that's where scorsese finds that sort of threads it through the needle where we as an audience we we get we fall in love with these characters even with their offer there's two examples of this that i noticed there's one it's quite early on when uh henry and tommy are in the car and they they've just set this place to light up on fire (laughs) they're just kind of waiting in the car and they're having this very just casual sort of hilarious conversation about how Tommy's trying to get with this broad and, you know, she's Jewish and she's prejudiced against Italians and, you know, what what age are we living in? They're having this hilarious conversation. Like, we've seen that before where we see something horrible going on in the background and then the characters that cause that. Mm. I just have it. Like, Tarantino does it all the time. Yep. But there was something about this scene in particular What because of the way it was shot, we get the shot reverse shot, we get enough time removed from the wide shot of the building about to set a fire that you get sucked into their conversation and by the time we cut back to the wide and they're like oh crap like it's already on fire you as an audience you completely forgot that that that's what they were yeah. there to do i was like wow that's like they really truly he scorsese really sucks you into that scene and into their conversation and you understand oh this is why i mean we see it multiple times about this film this 
casual approach to violence, this nonchalant approach to violence, but we finally, like, feel it through the editing of that scene. It's wonderful. And later, when Tommy's whacked, I felt bad. I'm like, this is a horrible person. And then I feel bad, and I, I think that's partly due with the relationship he has with his mother. Yeah. Which we well, get we get enough time to see that relationship. Yeah, and it, and it's so interesting that somehow, like you said, he manages to pepper these hilarious scenes, mm. and they are hilarious. The fact that you know, like you said, prior to the well, the the event that leads to Tommy getting whacked is is killing a maid guy. Yeah. And they've got like his that. body in the trunk, <laughs> and they're going to get a shuffle from his mum's house, and his mum <laughs> sits him down for dinner, and yeah. they eat the whole dinner and they have this genuinely sort of like authentic conversation despite mm. the fact there's this bloodied man in the trunk of the car <laughs> dying and you sort of sit there and you kind of laugh but like you said that seems so important because mm. we get to see this sweet old lady that doesn't seem to well it doesn't really have a clue what's going on but is no. so uh sweet mm. and believes in the, in the greater good and loves her boy and and that's the you know we we do see a little bit of that sort of love for a, a child kind of sprinkled with it throughout we see it a little bit with the the child perspectives through the carol and mm. and henry arguments which is kind of but it doesn't really this is the only real sort of mother son relationship we kind of get um, or mother child relationship yeah, we kind of get that that's as like sort of I was going to use the word illustrate. Um, well, that's it feels lived in and, and, and filled. And I think partly because of, obviously, that's Scorsese's mother that's actually playing Tommy's mother in the film and she's so charismatic and fun and they're all sort of riffing off each other. Um, I think a lot of that was improv, that scene. But what I love, it's a little detail as well, is when she shows the painting that she's drawn, which I actually think was the original wise guy author's mother that did that painting. That was a little fun fact that I read earlier. But I love that... Tommy for just a split second kind of falls into that that role of like a loving son where he's he's like complimenting the painting and he's like I love the way that dog's looking that way and that dog like it's such a simple But then makes a joke that the guy looks exactly yeah. like the guy in their trunk. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like it's weirdly wholesome and, and yeah. you know he's this you know gangster this violent criminal that even just for this moment he's able to have like a really hilariously simplistic but wholesome like analysis of his mother's painting yeah. and i and i that's just like the dynamic of these characters where you you, you, you know the, the funny house scene is is a absolute classic and i think part of that is because in that moment even though they're acting horrible to the people around them you can you can see yourself in that situation of just like having a laugh with the boys and something's really funny and you're just like you're having a good time yeah and like i think scorsese does such a great job at putting all these characters together and giving them enough scenes where they can just be themselves and to sort of bring the levity to a place where you can relax and sort of laugh mm-hmm. with these characters um, to really, despite what they've done, make you care when when they're either ra- whacked or something tragic happens to them. It's it's amazing. It's amazing what he does. Yeah. And it, and it is a big... That is sort of the point where everything really does exceedingly unravel for, mm. obviously, particularly the relationship between uh, Jimmy and Henry really begins to sour and fall apart. And yep. um, like you said, that moment when Tommy gets whacked is, you know, we see this this 
the most emotion that Jimmy gives the whole film. You know, he's mm. normally this calm, reserved person that we've seen acts of aggression, but he breaks down crying. He doesn't yeah. know how to control. And we really get it. And Henry sort of, you know, like doesn't really know how to react. We don't get a super a, little, a little pat on the shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that we sort of, because it was almost like Henry knew that was going, the inevitability of that happening. Mm. Um, and maybe it was more just ignorance, but it really feels, particularly for Jimmy in that moment, that feels like the rug's been pulled up from under him. Like the true untouchability nature has, mm. has been lost. And, what becomes very apparent to them in that moment is that there's a lot of things that the other knows about the other that could really undo their life. Mm. And it then levels up the sort of stakes there and, and raises the stakes and creates a sense of paranoia between the two of them, whereas it was an external force before then. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a scary thought, I think. Um, because at that point they were able to, like you said, take out all of Jimmy's witnesses um, to the the heist and and all the participants that allowed him to have all the money to himself. And this was the moment where the reality hammer comes crashing down and everything (laughs) falls apart. Mm. And And it kind of leads as well to sort of the later scenes in the film where we get an extended amount of time where Henry and, and Karen are both sort of prepared to be hit by jimmy and there's a great scene and it kind of goes off it literally goes off the line of karen accusing henry of just being paranoid we jump this is after polly gives him the what is it 3200 yeah Yeah, now i must turn my back on you (laughs) and then immediately we see the scene with her and jimmy and he's trying to lead her down the the alleyway and it's just like she can't help but be paranoid as well like the relationships have complete and she even says it early in the film that like this is this is my family and the, these are all the people we don't let outsiders in we don't like it's all us they have intense relationships with each other and now it's like not only does jimmy seem capable of, of leading them to their death but he's he's got that poker face you know we see him break down when when he finds out tommy's died but th- there's not a crack in his arsenal there no. there's no hint that like what he's doing he's ashamed that he's i mean we and to compare it to the irishman when spoiler alert, I guess <laughs> for the Irishman, but when De Niro has to kill Al Pacino, there's so much build up in his performance to I I don't want to have to do this, but I must, and like I feel horrible for what I'm about to do to kill this yeah. man, and there's none of that on Jimmy's face. It is what it Still is. Still, that but it is <laughs> it is what it is. Like. <laughs> so yeah, it's the, the ability for this tight knit family to because of their moral compass, because of just that gangster lifestyle this almost unwritten unspoken mm. sort of rule that they've established for themselves they have to coldly kill each other it is what it is <laughs> it is what it is it's a cool film and mm. and you know what it's it's so funny but you know even talking about it aloud i i can't help but think to myself and and particularly one thing that resonates with me is is the use of these um these choices of songs in this film, mm. which is such a, which is such oh, a big the music's part. Incredible. And, and there's some real, like interesting editing, having a, uh, every time, uh, Henry, particularly the latter stages of the film, uh, when he's snorting cocaine and he's, he's, he's going like full blown on it and bad to the bone rips in when he like yeah. takes the hit. And 
and it then it disappears and then rips back in when he like it's so interesting <laughs> having that muddy waters song in there which is still a product of you know that 50s sort of era but then we have more contemporary f- uh, music seep in there so we see a lot of that sort of 50s sort of the golden age of of the mm. mafia guy you know this is the and all i could think about was the way that uh, a video game like mafia 2 integrates oh, yeah. sound into it and i just think to, <laughs> the more i talk about particularly this film the more i think man mafia 2 just ripped off <laughs> good fellas <laughs> hard it just basically turned it into a video game and um, even the story and the way it inter- the weaves and narratives and the Odyssey. I don't know if you ever played Mafia Two. I have not, but like it's to your point, game. like the effect that this film had on like the wider, I guess subgenre of like gangster thriller and crime drama. I mean, you've got you got Ray Liotta is is plays the protagonist in GTA Vice City. Really? Like, yeah, yeah, that's him. And like he famously hated doing it. But, like, he was one of the first, like, rock star getting, like, stars. Obviously, Samuel Jackson was in San Andreas, and, and we, we get more examples of and that. And in Goodfellas. And in, oh, yeah, there you go. He is. Is this his first role? This, I feel like 1990, this... that seems way too late for Samuel Jackson, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, he blew up with um, Pulp Fiction. That was a few years later. 94, so that's four years. You'd be close. It'd be a very early... Sam Jackson. I'm trying to. It's there. He is Sam. Jeez, he's like he's like thirty rows down the cast like that. <laughs> I mean, that says where he was in his career at that point. That he's like he's like the thirty fifth person on the call sheet. Let's find out. All right, earliest first release date. Samuel Jackson. Um. Oh, he was in Do the Right Thing. Okay. As a Mr. Senior Love Daddy. He was actually in tons of films before Goodfellas, but yeah, I I he, he wasn't a leading man at this point. No, certainly not. This definitely felt like... I mean, this is definitely... I would be surprised a lot of people would probably be like, yeah, this is one of the first times I remember him in it. And mm. to be honest, the, the violence levels are very reminiscent of what would become Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. This, this film definitely feels like a, a late inclusion to what Tarantino would go on to do two years later and then four years later... But it's there. I mean, the narration aspect, the the cool aspect. I think the coolness and yeah, and the naturalistic. Well, I mean, I wouldn't call Tarantino's dialogue naturalistic, but like stylized. Well, I mean, I 100% agree with you. The whole idea of that, particularly that scene where Pesci and and Leota are in the car together mm-hmm. chatting, and we completely forget about they they were there to do a job. Yeah. And, that fl- sense of flow and fluidity mm, where you're like just getting it. enamored by what the characters are saying and and that that definitely occurs particularly by the time you get to pulp fiction when you know they're talking about royale with cheese and yep. you forget that they're off to go do a hit that mm. they're talking about burgers like it's that casual nonchalantness that creates that sense of coolness and yeah i guess it's sort of like almost the anti-western in the sense that that you think of classic westerns from like maybe the 60s i mean we did films like django and once upon a time in the west on this podcast and there's such a i wouldn't i don't know if i would call it self-awareness but like the the cold steel protagonists you know these western protagonists we think about that are very silent and stoic and uh, very very particular with maybe the words they use or the actions they take and I think this is sort of taking the opposite effect of okay here's here's a gangster archetype which is also something you can consider kind of cool and hip and you know to do a crime and whatnot and to make them 
to make the dialogue the complete opposite of what you would expect. They're not cold and stoic. They're actually very, like, almost likable, charismatic characters mm. with charismatic performers. So it feels very purposeful that they're doing it. They're sort of subverting the expectation. And then that's how you get Goodfellas and Pulp Fiction, these films that are much more interesting takes yeah. on the crime genre. Absolutely. I will also compare it to Francis Ford Coppola, of course, because I feel like Goodfellas and Godfather are like, I guess, the two you would point to. Yeah. And I think as much as, like I said, there is that uh, relatability, you know, that sense of family and respect and those themes that sort of are shared between the two, I guess, in the middle of the Venn diagram. But the big difference for me is the pacing. And we've we've already said it multiple times today, the, the much more energetic yep. pacing, much faster. And I... And I think that really does set Goodfellas aside from something like The Godfather, which is much more methodical. But I did find a quote from Scorsese talking about the edit of Goodfellas. And he says, To begin Goodfellas like a gunshot and have it get faster from there, almost like a a two-and-a-half-hour trailer, I think it's the only way you can really sense the exhilaration of the lifestyle and to get a sense of why a lot of people are attracted to it. I thought it was fascinating that he said in the late 80s, early 90s, that he purposely edited this film like a trailer. First of which tells you what trailers were like back then. Yeah. Because I think TikToks are what you think of two, you know, long trailers yeah. nowadays. Um, but I guess, like we said, this feels like the first time Scorsese really tries a film like this fast-paced and energetic. That I I like the way he described it as like, this is the it, only way to get the sense of the lifestyle. But it's the perfect foundation. Exactly the same as what would become Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, yes. to be honest, it... There are two films that do really reflect each other. It's those two films. I mean, the 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 sort of structure that that one undergoes, the fact that although we don't get like uh, Margot Robbie narration like we do in in mm. this this film, sure, um, but we still get that sort of um, the female perspective in that film, and that does particularly in its first hour in Wolf of Wall Street. It's a sprint. Yeah, it's like insane and I do think it, it, it sort of peters a little in the middle there and, mm. and I honestly I think that film really peters out quite not well quite lacklusterly I don't really like particularly the last part of Wolf of Wall Street yeah. I, I will admit it's very um, easy to just start watching Wolf of Wall Street because of how fun it is and then in the third hour just kind of hit pause yeah and and it, I'm good for now whereas this film I think keeps you invested um, the whole way through. I, I do think that the the first half is it's very similar. I think the first half is like you get completely caught in the mm. gangster life. You're supposed to. You're supposed to. And then it hits it hits its first sort of hump when they go to prison for the first time. And, mm. and then we find uh, that Paulie gets out with the other guys and, and Ray's kind of left in there by himself. And we see little sort of Lily starts to fall apart a little bit there and well we get more into the whole like his affair on Can- uh, Karen yep and then that that's kind of brought more to the foresight, forefront and his sort of relational issues there yeah and then things start to fall apart but then they have a little reprieve and a little redeem and obviously it continues when Paulie says stop doing the drug stuff it's different mm. when you're on the inside and of course Henry doesn't and that's when the spiral really starts to begin and, mm. and, and just continues from there when we obviously see successes from other people, but then leads to massive hits and, of course, the death of, of Tommy. Mm. Um, and then by the, the final 40 minutes, we just, you know, 30, 40 minutes, like you said, no one's trusting each other. It's all really fallen apart. Both Karen now and Henry are 
drug users and um, disheveled and, and kind of just completely f- barely getting by. Yeah. Um, well, what I love about the way Karen's portrayed in this film, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly shocked at how much um, sort of screen time and, and, and a, as much of a voice as she gets because, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that will call, maybe not call out Scorsese so much, but, like, he has a lot of male protagonists yeah. in his films. And I think this is kind of the closest you get to seeing both sides there because we get plenty of time seeing not only Karen's attraction to Henry and the and the mob lifestyle, you know, the 21-year-old with connections, I didn't quite question it, but then that slow-motion shot, the close-up is he puts the gun in her hand and says, like, hide it. And she says, she's like, anyone else would have ran in that moment, but there was something about holding the bloody gun that attracted me to it. And what I love is that they both sort of have the same journey throughout, where when, when Henry's disheveled and, and messed up, she is too. <laughs> Yeah. They both have that journey, and it, and it beautifully leads up to when she's aiming the gun in his face, that POV shot, which is Good a classic. Shot. But just like they're both on the same downward trajectory the whole time. And it was a little, I know it's based on a true story, and they're just trying to be truthful with the end title sequence, but I was a little like thrown off when it said that she, in real life, left Henry Hill, I think in the mid 80s. And it was almost like, oh, wow, like there was this, you know, domestic abuse aspect of their relationship and it was probably a good thing that she got away from it. Yeah. But the way that they were sort of ride and die together throughout the whole film, it almost surprised me a bit to see that they did break up afterwards. Yeah. I mean, it does come back to... Um, I think that their relationship has, was on a very fine tether and that mm. kind of comes across a little bit in that scene when they're, they're going into witness protection and yep. she is actively kind of almost against it, but the mm. only way he'll do it is if they come and... I mean, it's it's the ride, it's riding the bumps. I mean, the, the, we kind of see the relationship fall apart too and it's, it's kind of remedied and supported because Jimmy and Paulie are like, oh, we'll, we'll fix it up. We'll fix it. go down to Florida, we'll yeah. fix it up. And then that comes back to, like you said, that... Is it? It's either an inescapable nature of the mafia, the fact that when you're in, you're in, and there really mm. is no way out for if you marry into the family, right? Um, or the fact that they had that support network there, and when that support network was gone, and they were nothing more than schmucks, there wasn't actually that much in their relationship in the first place, mm. and that could be the also that could also be the the truthful aspect, the fact that. The first night that Henry and and Karen are together on that double date, he hasn't doesn't yeah. want anything to do he with wants it. To leave as Only soon as he when can. does she come to him and scream at him? Mm, there's some drama, yeah. That he buys into it and bites back and goes, "Oh, well, hang on, hang on." And there's almost the relationship's founded on a negative, and mm. it's, it's almost a relationship founded on on sand with really good found you know support around. Yeah, it. I guess I guess you're right that what once like the exhilaration and the the schmuck life begins, that the the exciting lifestyle is gone. There is no reason for them to be together anymore. Very similar that trajectory that Wolf of Wall Street goes on. Mm. You know, Robbie's character's enamored because he's got money and wealth, yep. and when he starts to actually reveal him as a person there's not a lot they like about each other (laughs) because he's it because at the end of the time he's he's a piece of crap what's the external factors that are sort of motivating them yes it's not the internal love they have for each other or anything like that i guess that's why it's important in wolf of wall street to show that like jordan he has a wife and he leaves her for like the more artificial lifestyle and like and and like you said in goodfellas that's represented by the fact that he's not interested in her 
until there's a sense of drama. Yes. And she yells at him in front of everyone, and it's sort of a big scene. So, no, that, that actually makes perfect sense, the, the way that you uh, drew it out there. Um, Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I guess the only question, and, and we, we, we already started kind of talking about it then with this idea that the film ends with him feeling like a schmuck and sort of longing for those days. Do you agree with the assessment that, that I sort of made watching this film as one that I, I think starts out with that, you know, scene we're jumping halfway through the story? And to me, that scene is, is showing a disillusioned Ray Liotta, a disillusioned... Um, Henry Hill. Henry Hill. <laughs> Mind blank there for a second. Um, who seems sort of scared almost of, of the life that he's been into, entangled in, despite the fact that everything else about the rest of the film is saying that he loves being a part of this, he loves the excitement and the drama and the respect. But then the film also ends with him having finally gotten out of that mm. and just be like, God, I wish I could go back. Do you think this is a character study of a man who can't make up his mind, that's never satisfied? I think so. Mm. But uh, to be honest, uh, I think he's left with that sense of of, of hunger. Mm. Um, and the fact that he's tasted the riches of riches and is now left with uh, wanting a spaghetti and getting ketchup with noodles. You know, <laughs> it, I think that we're meant to feel that the end of this uh, character is empty and disillusioned. Mm. I mean, this is not a trait that is uh, dissimilar to a lot of Scorsese films of, of dis, um, characters that are uh, disillusioned and, and left empty. Um, uh, I, I think in his character in particular, because if we compare it to things like Wolf of Wall Street and stuff like this, is a character that was never a really inherently nice person, doesn't have really any sense of redemption in his character and really doesn't actively feel sorry for mm. the fact that he breaks the cardinal rule of his family which is don't snitch yeah. and he snitched and it's interesting this moment this this sort of uh piece to camera confession yeah which leads to him finishing with looking down the barrel of the camera in the courtroom yeah well yeah. that and then even where he's looking out at the lawn in the final oh, shot, the it almost shot, yeah, yeah, where he's kind of piercing down. But that's interesting. That confessional there too, where he mm. does the walking to camera, which we see in other films uh, in greater detail. But um, yeah, I think he at that point is accepting that he was nothing more than uh, a sniveling. So it's that whole idea of being nothing more than a sniveling rat. Mm. Um, that only required to be pushed to his sort of limit. And, and there's no, there's no nest. like justification for it either in the sense that, well, I had to do it because they were going to kill me. Yeah. They were going to turn on it. They were going to kill me and kill my wife. Maybe kill my entire family. There's none of that. He immediately goes to, oh, that sucks. I wish I didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and the reality is at the end of the day, the only reason he did that is because, I mean, I think at that point, I think when Paulie said, I'll turn my back on you, I think it was, that was implying that probably won't come after you, but I'm not helping you anymore. That's yeah. it. We're done. Go find your own way. You're no longer a wise guy. Yeah. That's it. What was your highlight scene, Jake? Oh, there's a few. <laughs> there's a lot. I did write my highlight scene as the Henry and Tommy in the car chatting because yeah. I thought that was just really clever the way they suck you in. Um, I do like... 
I what I love about the scene when Henry and Karen are negotiating like their witness protection. He says he, he wants to go no, no place cold. <laughs> what I love about it is not even the scene itself. It's the fact that most other screenplays, most other films would, you know, we've just come from these two instances of of paranoia from Henry and and Karen respectively. We don't have a scene wedged there in the middle where they come together. Um, there, there is the scene where she drives up and she's terrified and shaking. He hugs her. But there's no like dialogue exchange of, I can't do this anymore. We need to turn ourselves in. There's nothing like that. It cuts straight to not only the witness protection, the meeting, but it jumps straight into the funniest part of that meeting, which is them debating not wanting to go somewhere cold. Mm. And the fact that Scorsese, instead of relying on this like dramatic scene where they get to you know, get to cry on camera and, and do this big spell they jump straight into the humorous side of the situation that in turn also informs the audience of oh this is where they're going now yeah this is their next move as a couple and, and as the plot and the story so i really did appreciate that i also want to shout out the wedding because henry and karen's wedding cake was exactly the same as my mom and dad's wedding cake oh yeah Mum mentioned that. I was like, oh, that's really funny. <laughs> couple of good fellas. There you go. A couple of good fellas. I, I love that fun fact. They have the exact same wedding cake. Um, I feel like I'm cheating because I'm saying too many things. That's um, okay. And I don't want to say the big one-up because it's it's the uh, then they then he kissed me one through the back oh. room. That's, I mean, that's phenomenal. But... Yeah, when they're moving through on the first date. Is that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um where it leads to getting the table at the front. Yeah, they put the table out in real time for them. Um, but even just that that he's giving away the twenty dollar tips. Yeah, and just like he's learned from Jimmy. Yeah, he's kind of like at this peak. He's, he's a young, respected man. He's drawing her in. It's a t- and, and drawing the audience in. Drawing this, the audience this suave in. Suave man that seems to have it all figured out yeah and the best part is they only shot it like that because they didn't have permission to shoot at the front of the restaurant so they decided on the day up oh, like we got to do it this way the significantly How cooler way ingenious is that yeah. i love it zeke what's your highlight scene well that's a tough one to beat that is a tough <laughs> one to beat i i think that there's a lot to like um i i think that for me <laughs> if it was, it was the comedic scene it would have to the shine box scene is just hilarious <laughs> between Tommy um Billy Bats Billy Bats and just that the way that scene's paced and the problem is we're, we're almost getting these cautionary points and and this is the point where we first see Tommy lose him he yes. crows over the line he crosses the line mm. um and we you know he we can't control to, his temper his emotions yeah and we do see bits of it where yeah. Although in the earlier parts, you know, he's just messing around with Henry. We do see the, you're talking to me, but then immediately uh, the, am I a clown? Do I amuse you scene, which is kind of funny because it leads mm. to that incredible Ray Liotta laugh, which is just <laughs> ridiculous. He laughs like that quite a lot throughout the film. I was surprised. It's, it's like ridiculous. high hyena laugh. Yeah, it is. Um, but obviously that then leads to an actual like Tommy happily glassing someone. But the Billy Batshum boxer, it's the awkwardness of it because it's like, it's this Billy Bats is out of prison. There's only like six guys there and a couple <laughs> of girls. And it's just kind of an awkward back and forth. Yeah. And lots of big pauses. To the and big pauses to the point where Bats. Do I just say says this? Do I, do I stab him and, and say it? it? Yeah, it yeah, is. yeah. And it's just hilarious because <laughs> every part of that, you're like, 
you don't really... It's not super clear Bats is this made guy. Um, he's not a character we've seen before. Sure. And I would say it would be nice to have a little bit more uh, clarity, but it's just not Scorsese's style. It doesn't feel naturalistic if we have that would, expositional dialogue there. Would that be a case of, like, Henry Hill... Henry Hill would know that he was a made man. Yeah, well, they all knew it. They yeah. all knew it when it was happening. That's yeah. why they had to move upstate and kill it. But yeah, it was. It would have been that little bit of dialogue. But this is the thing. The film is either from Karen's perspective or Henry's pure perspective. There's yeah. no... There's no. We don't get to look really into what Tommy's thinking or Jimmy's thinking to the point where in that moment when Tommy comes back and to kill Bats, Jimmy knows what's going on. Henry doesn't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, like Jimmy that's true. Well, he him. he sort of yelled at to close the door. Like he's one step behind the rest of them. And and it also comes back to you know when later in the film when when it's Maurice's life that's on the sort of got the sword of Damocles hanging over <laughs> it. It Henry gets told to go home, yeah. and Jimmy and Tommy carry out that kill. Um, and we do see that you know that's the only time we see kind of we get removed occasionally like an objective from objective viewpoint. Yeah. Of the scenario. Um, but. It then immediately cuts to back to Henry's perspective. This this not really understanding, you know, Maurice's wife comes in and is like hysterical and knows something's happened. Mm. Um, that would be interesting if they decided not to show that scene and just have her come in hysterical and and you along with Henry would be confused of oh, but I thought I thought I'd spared his life today. Yeah. But evidently not. Would have been cool. It would have been cool if you'd kept that pure Henry or Karen perspective there, yeah. I think, would have been really... Because um, they don't break into that objective Not very often, world, you're right. very often, yeah. and it almost would benefit, but maybe maybe it was there was an edit that had just the pure, and it was just a little too hard to follow. Yeah. Um, maybe Thelma was onto it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Who's edited almost every single Scorsese film he's ever made. There you go. What Good, a legend. Goodfellas is currently out in wide release. Jake, what streaming platforms are Goodfellas available on? On Stan and Paramount Plus. There you go. Paramount what? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even going to mention it. I just noticed in the corner of my eye it does say Paramount Plus there. So Excellent. I'm going to believe it. I well, choose to believe speaking it. Speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas near us this week? So this one snuck through. Bill Bird directed a movie. Directed a movie called Old Dads, which comes to Netflix this week and sees him also starring as one of three best friends who become fathers later in life and find themselves battling preschool principals and millennial CEOs. I'm scared. I'm worried. I'm scared. I mean, I'm hoping this is like a King of Staten Island vibe. where It could be. It could be. Where... It feels like Pete Davidson had a really big, obviously a massive hand in that. I know it's a Judd Apatow film, but sure. because it was so tied to Pete Davidson, I think that, that a lot of creative, there would have been a lot of creative control balance there. Well, that's you're right. I think balance, and, and that's why I worry here, was, is this, like, we love Bill Burr to death, but what does Bill Burr look like, like, unhinged? Like, behind the camera, in front of the camera, doing everything. I think he co-wrote it with someone else. I think... My, I'm curious. See, my thing is, and this is when we when I hear these these, because uh, he's a Hollywood actor now. Like he's a, it's yeah. it's happy. You he's know, been in the business. He has. He understands business. There is probably a degree of, and I don't want to take away from Bill Burr, and I don't want to take of away course. from any of these actor directors that go. I'm going to do the actor director thing. Hmm. But there's so many other industry professionals on that set that probably help the process mm, you know that's true is is directing 
in this particular situation is directing basically like we just want a camera there and and the cameraman does his thing and Mm. and captures this and then he's in front of the camera like well this is what the script says let's try and like get around the mark and we'll we'll improv it Mm. and then he goes and watches back the 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 take and goes yep i like that move on like is that what he's directing yeah like how much how much is he really overseeing everything because that's my thing because i think might be delegating roles that it's yeah yeah. it's 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 directing but it's like what kind of directing Mm. is it is is because is he he the same caliber as like a scorsese direction like what are we getting when we're we're saying he's directing something yeah because i mean we're not being like we're not diminishing his skills or his abilities because it's like every director has different styles you've got gareth edwards that he's holding the camera yep he handhelds his own stuff on these gigantic sci-fi films um, so, you know, there are different sort of levels of, of being an overseer as a director. And, and, you know, anyone would tell you that a director achieves 90% of their role when they cast correctly or when they hire the correct crew. Yeah. That most of their work is done at that point. And, you know, it's like... I think I'm that's not, absolutely true. I'm, I'm doubt he's going to have an input on the lighting, uh, like, you know, obviously, it's like yeah. the lighting style or, or what shots are being used. He'll want... It'll probably be like, how's the scene blocked? Let's build a shot list around how it's blocked. Mm. And then... Would he even have a shot list? You know, it could be... Yeah, so I'm with you. I'm very curious to what extent is he directing or is it just like... It's his thing and he's sort of talking to the actors. The DOP's doing most of the work. I don't don't know. Yeah. I'm curious. It's going to be really interesting. I thought I'd chime in with that. No, of course. I mean, hey, Bill, but I that caught me off guard a couple of days ago as well. So, and we love him, but oh. it's there's there's different kinds of directing. Yeah, I think so. I'm very. Hey, we wish him the best. I hope it's a hilarious movie. I hope so too. Wouldn't it be great if it was actually a drama? It was like that? a super serious drama. Yeah. <laughs> I was. Yeah. It's it's sort of like with the whole Bradley Cooper, A Star Is Born, where it's like mm. you're directing a, a singer to be a singer like right and and then directing yourself and then you've got but the but the other thing there especially with with lady gaga is like for her that was such a big moment in terms of coming out of a shell doing a role where there's not a lot of makeup in most of the scenes yeah so there's a lot there between like the performative scenes so did it deserve a best director nod That was a big question because he wasn't happy about that. He's still angry. I mean, hey, he's trying now for this maestro. Yeah, we shall see. That's around the corner, actually, maestro. Very soon. But everyone's upset because he made his own nose big. Get. I thought he already had a big nose. But that was the thing. Is is I forget the um the name of the person he's portraying, but he he gave himself a big nose, and apparently it's anti-Semitic. Oh. Okay. Even though the family of the person he's portraying was completely fine with it, but I'm just happy the Snow White person's fired. <laughs> Is she actually? Yeah, she got fired. Oh, that's she funny. Got dropped. Rachel, <laughs> Rachel Zegler. Oh, uh, bye bye. <laughs> also coming to Netflix, we have two horror short films. Interesting. You don't get a lot of shorts on Netflix. No, you don't. This includes uh, a film about a yoga teacher and a deadly home invasion, and a film called Flashback. And a young couple tearing up LA's hottest disco while being chased by a dark presence in Disco Inferno. So there you go. We're celebrating Halloween. I guess it's about time. Yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. The the, the decorations are all up. It's time. Uh, Coming to stand this week, you've got films like Ad Astra and Robert Eggers' The Northman. 
uh, coming to Disney Plus with this. Uh, Disney Plus this week. My goodness. Uh, we've got the new Haunted Mansion film. Mm-hmm. That was bloody quick. It was very that quick. That came to cinemas five seconds ago. Oh, my goodness. And uh, we also got the 4K restoration of the original. It's funny you mention that. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So there you go. Minus one new Snow White. <laughs> Oh, goodness. I need to read into that. That's interesting. I didn't realize she was fired. Yeah. That's so funny. Coming to Apple TV Plus this week, we had The Pigeon Tunnel, which is a British documentary exploring the life and career of John Lee Carey, spanning six decades from the stormy Cold War to the present day. And coming to cinemas, we have quite a few films. The Origin of Evil sees a woman on the verge of financial collapse, which totally relate to that, uh, attempt to reconnect with her wealthy estranged father and his new family. Mm, hilarity ensues, I imagine. Mm. Very good. Uh, we have Oink, which is the first stop-motion animated feature from the Netherlands and sees a nine-year-old girl gifted a pig from her grandfather. Seems really cute. Does seem cute. Yeah, I like that. Uh, Nyad, N-Y-A-D, follows the remarkable true story of the 60-year-old athlete Diana Nyad and her 110-mile open swim from Cuba to Florida. It stars Annette Benning and Jodie Foster as her best friend slash coach. Hmm. There you go. You don't need to worry. I misread something. Rachel Zegler isn't still technically built oh, to be Snow White. Oh, I see. But there's a lot of motions to cancel it. Yeah, the motions are out there. Yeah. <laughs> we shall see. I've seen yeah, a lot of reels of her like contradicting herself on different. Yeah, no, things. she's it's it's not looking great for her. No. <laughs> So we shall see if she survives. Uh, and finally, this is playing exclusively at Luna. We got Rotting in the Sun, which sees a struggling artist and ketamine taker meet with an influencer at a nudist beach, and the two begin collaborating. So uh, this seems like a wacky film. I read a quote from the filmmakers. They've called this quote "Uncut Gems" meets Casablanca meets Godfather Two. Meets Annie Hole, meets Mean Girls, meets Parasite, meets Snow White, meets Pornhub, meets The Little Mermaid. So that's that's a lot of films you missed. That's a lot to unpack. There you go. That's uh, maybe <laughs> maybe that's the film we should be watching next week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but not quite. There is one more film coming to cinemas next week that I'm very excited for us to talk about. Yes. Mm. We are uh, oiling up our joints and it's full steam ahead. <laughs> But, Jake, what are we watching? That was good. I like it. Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. The Osage took their name from Missouri and Osage Rivers. Neukonska, children of the Middle Waters. Move, said the Great White Father. There are many, so many hungry wolves. Can you find the wolves in this picture?
Can you find the wolves in this picture? Members of the Osage Native American tribe are murdered after oil is found on their Oklahoma land in the 1920s. The FBI decides to investigate. Is this about a person that's not really likable that we learn to like and then hate because he gets corrupted by the world? <laughs> you know what? I actually don't think it is. Oh. Which is quite interesting. From what I glean, because you, you got... I feel like Leonardo DiCaprio's he—he's in the role that's sort of stuck in the middle of this situation. Mm. I think he's in love with one of the the Osage people, uh, Lily Gladstone, which I'm hearing amazing things about her performance. Um, but it seems like this film's going to have a lot to say about race. I'm hearing it is excellent, which is good. I think it just got the certified fresh Rotten Tomatoes score. Excellent. Yippee! That means <laughs> something. Are you ready for the? Uh, the three-hour, twenty-six-minute runtime, Zeke. Less than the Irishman, though. Yeah, I'm I'm here for it. I, I yeah. I'm looking forward to having a nice uh, sit down. I'm gonna have my charcuterie board probably. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, yes. I tell you, I felt before we finish up today. Okay. I when I went and saw Haunting in Venice, yes. Audi have a three cheese Spanish cheese board pack, so you get little three cheeses. Okay. And some prosciutto or Spanish, whatever the Spanish version of prosciutto is. And it's like $7. And I took, and you get 90 second water, 90 cents water crackers. So $8. And you take that into Hoyt's and that's like... Is it like a wooden plate? You just... It's like a plastic one. But oh, it's like, okay. Interesting. And You have to hold it with both hands? No, because one hand. Oh, okay. And because okay. now the big. the Hoyt seats are the big thick ones, it rests quite nicely. He just rests it there. Yeah. And you just, uh, you know, you just. I brought a little butter knife and I just chopped mm. it up before while the lights were still on. And I just gave myself a little cheese board. I would lo- okay. I would love. I've never been in the cinema when this <laughs> scenario has happened. But I would love if I'm sitting in the cinema <laughs> and the guy in front of me, one row, just starts cutting up cheese on his cheese plate before the movie starts. That's brilliant. Yeah. And it was That's amazing. like a, I will re-download Snapchat and film that. <laughs> That's like that level of quality of humor. I love it. It was, it was worth it. It was eight dollars <laughs> from Audi. And I can tell you I will probably get one before going to see Killers of the Flower Moon. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, no, I'm I am excited. I think after a few Lord of the Rings films, I'm actually kind of You ready? I I'm ready. I am Oof. generally I'm I'm uh, the same thing happened with the Irishman. The Irishman generally like reprogrammed my I don't want to use the word tolerance for film, but like my ability to to mm-hmm. enjoy 4-hour films without being like overly I don't know what the, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but my my, my I'm going to keep using tolerance. It's the best word. Excellent. So I'm I'm keen. I'm very keen for Killers of the Fire Moon. We waited a long time for the seek. Yes, we so, have. Uh, it's time, and it is time. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. <laughs> <laughs>